Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host, Shante Charles. I hope that you are having a great and wonderful day. It is Finance Friday, Healthy, Wealthy, Wise Friday, and I hope that you are doing everything within your power um, to make sure that you are at the best of health, optimal health, optimal wealth, and optimal peace. So I want to take a moment, if you have not done this all week, I want you to take a moment to check in with yourself, with me. So follow along. Close your eyes. Breathe in. Through your nose. And out. Breathe in. And out. Breathe in. And out. Now, as you have your eyes closed, I want you to start at the top of your head. Allow yourself to feel what is happening at the top of your body. Do you feel any aches? Do you notice any pain? Any pain in your head, behind your eyes? Now imagine yourself coming down. Do you recognize any sensations in your ears? Is your breathing clear? Does your nose feel clear or does it feel stuffy? Come down. Swallow with your tongue. Does your air passage for your throat seem smooth or does it feel scratchy? Come down into your throat area. Take one deep chest breath. Let that chest breath out. Do you feel any pain? Do you feel any tension in your neck? Do you feel any tension in your shoulders? Continue down. Do you feel any pain in your stomach? Move your torso from side to side. Do you feel any pain or tightness in your back? Keep moving. Keep moving your torso from side to side. Do you feel any pain in your waist? Keep moving, keep moving your torso. Now go ahead and stretch out your right leg. Stretch it all the way out. Pull your foot back towards you. Pull your foot away from you, stretch your foot away from you. Do you feel any tension in your legs, in your calves? Rotate your ankle. Do you feel any pain there? 
wiggle your toes. Do you feel any pain there? Go ahead and stretch out your left leg. Stretch your foot away from your leg. Stretch your foot towards your leg. Do you feel any pain, any tension in the back of your calves? Rotate your ankle if you can. Do you feel any pain or tension there? And wiggle your toes. Do you feel any pain or tension when you wiggle your toes? And drop your foot back down. It is always good to do what I call a self-check on the body. So we started at our head and we went all the way down to our toes. That is something that you can do for yourself every single day. When you get up or you can do it laying in bed. Um, just to check your body, check yourself. How are you feeling today? I would say I'm feeling pretty good. I don't have any tension, no cloudiness in my head, no tension behind my eyes, no tension in my neck and my shoulders like I've been having the last couple of weeks. Um, all of that tension is gone. Thank God. <laughs> I do feel a little bit of tension in the back of my legs and the back of my calves. That just simply means I need to do a little bit more walking. So I'm going to try to get some walking in today. If it's not too cold outside, if it is too cold, I'm going to hit the ellipsis, uh, the elliptical and do some walking on the elliptical. So just a little exercise that you can do. Um, wherever you are for the most part and to check on your body. So good morning to those of you coming in. This is Finance Friday and we are looking at the book, The Whiteness of Wealth Again, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. We are still in the chapter, The Great Unequalizer, um, talking about college and I believe that we're going to finish up today, hopefully. It's a pretty long chapter, but I believe we should finish today. All right. Uh, when we come back next week, we'll be um, on all of next week. So next Friday, we'll be looking at her chapter called The Best Jobs. Who has them? Who's not getting them? And how is that affecting the wealth gap? Today, we finish up The Great Unequalizer. As we begin reading, there is a conversation happening about the anti-intellectualism that is increasing in America, where there are people who are saying, you don't need to read. Why do you need to read? Um, reading is not necessary. Um, but I beg to differ. I think that reading is one of the most important skills that you can have in life. And not only just reading the English language, but also reading, you know, other languages. So a part of what we do here through Daring Dialogue is we help people to engage in reading. So even if you aren't able to physically pick up the book yourself, or if you are struggling with reading lots of material, one of the ways that we're choosing to help and increase literacy is through reading aloud. 
So um, if you do pick up this book, The uh, Whiteness of Wealth, and you know you read aloud, we're on page 119. For those of you who actually have this book, you can read along with us. All right. So that is my contribution to the discussion around anti-intellectualism. It is, in fact, very important to read. We know that an uneducated society, an illiterate society, is more, is more readily available to enslave. If you can't read your contracts, it's very easy to write something in that can enslave you, right? If you can't, uh, you know, read the words in a contract, you might see some numbers, but the words might be off. The words might say something completely opposite of the numbers that you see. So it's not only important to uh, know how to identify numbers, but it is important to know how to read. Just want to throw that plug in. So let us begin. Page 119, The Great Unequalizer. Back when very few Americans and almost exclusively the wealthy attended college, their families received significant tax breaks that continue today. If the bank of mom and dad or grandma and grandpa is paying for you to attend college, that money is treated as a tax-free gift to you for federal income tax purposes, provided it's sent directly to the educational institution. Let's pretend that I attend Emory and have a grandparent who can afford to cover the $55,998 for tuition and fees that Emory charged for the 2020-2021 academic year. My paternal grandmother, Bertha, was a domestic worker and my maternal grand great-grandfather was born enslaved in South Carolina in 1862. So this isn't likely a particular scenario for me, but stay with me. If Grandma Bertha were to give me the money as a gift, it would be tax-free for her only to the extent of $15,000. She would need to account for gift tax purposes for the other $40,998. But if she could write a $55,998 tuition check directly to Emory University, the entire amount would be tax-free and there would be no need to further account for that money. Under current law, this is largely an academic distinction. Even if Grandma Bertha did give the money directly to me, requiring her to account for it on her taxes, it's unlikely she'd actually reach the threshold required for gifts to be taxed. Tax-free family transfers will be discussed in more detail in Chapter 5. As college became more accessible with the passing of the GI Bill after World War II, the tax treatment of scholarships became more important. Recall, however, that black veterans were still subject to Jim Crow laws. Those laws prevented them from taking advantage of government benefits to become homeowners. When it came to accessing benefits for college, something similar took place. Black veterans were denied entry to historically white universities and had to choose from a limited number of HBCUs where officials at the Veterans Administration often steered them toward vocational training instead of college. In the early days of income tax, the IRS took the position that receipt of a scholarship in exchange for education was an exchange of services which made scholarships taxable income. Congress, however, disagreed. 
1954, the same year that Brown v. Board of Education was decided, it established a tax exclusion for scholarships. Those milestones, plus the creation of Pell Grants for low-income families as part of the Higher Education Act of 1965, led to significant gains in college attendance rates. The number of white men, white women, and black women attending college had nearly doubled by 1970. The number of black men tripled. The Pell Grant program represents one of the few scholarship exclusion advantages that black students disproportionately benefit from. Pell Grants are awarded by income and roughly 70% of black college students receive them compared to 34% of whites. In 1975, a Pell Grant covered 79% of the average cost of tuition, fees, room, and board at a public school at a public four-year college. The next major shift in the education tax policy took place in 1986 when the deduction for all personal interests except mortgage interests was repealed and student loan interest was no longer deductible. At the same time, federal tuition subsidies were being branded as unfair burdens to taxpayers who did not attend college. You know, kind of like forgiving student loans. The Reagan administration's Office of Management and Budget Director David Stockman, testifying before Congress in 1981, referred to federal subsidies for higher education like Pell Grants and guaranteed student loans as, quote, entitlements that we created in the 1970s and excessive. Shortly after the 1986 Tax Reform Act became law, Bill Bennett, the Secretary of Education, wrote in a New York Times op-ed, on average, college graduates can earn $640,000 more over their lifetime than non-graduates do. It is simply not fair to ask taxpayers, many of whom do not go to college, to pay more than their fair share of the tuition burden. A decade later, when college costs had grown and the maximum Pell Grants were not keeping pace, two more changes took place. In 1996, 529 plans that provide favorable tax treatment for certain college savings accounts were approved by Congress. Money deposited into the account by parents or other family members is from after-tax dollars, and the investment income is not taxed as the account grows. In addition, any withdrawals for tuition, books, and room, and board are treated as tax-free intra-family gifts. To participate, of course, a family must have extra income to set aside, and as of 2012, only about 3% of Americans were saving for college using a tax-deferred account, according to the Government Accountability Office. Of those, 84% of those were white and 5% were black. A Federal Reserve study showed that the average black family's balance was $27,068, while the average white family's balance was $40,786. A year later, Congress shifted its position again, and student loan interest became an allowable deduction. A white dental student named Jennifer Long testified before the Senate committee advocating for the change. She told committee members that she would owe $90,000 upon graduation, which she would pay in installments of $1,100 per month. She estimated that she would pay $7,500 in interest in her first year of repayment. She also called out the hypocrisy of the Republicans' line of attack on student borrowers 
given that the mortgage interest deduction had survived the 1986 reforms, despite primarily benefiting the wealthy. I could only afford to attend dental school with loans, and for many other students and parents, loans are the only way to finance their education. Oddly, the tax code allows for individuals to deduct for a second house, but not for a first education. Congress agreed to change the tax code, but with a catch. As it still stands today, the maximum interest deduction is $2,500, and you cannot take any deduction if your income is above $85,000 for an individual or $170,000 for a married couple. Jennifer Long did not get the seaborne treatment. Even if she met the income requirements, a tax break that capped the interest deduction at $2,500 was not going to do much good for someone like her with an annual interest payment of $7,500. It doesn't do much good for a lot of black college graduates either. Take the research mentioned earlier in the chapter that shows that black college graduates four years out have 53,000 in student loans, while whites have 28,000. Assume a 6% interest rate, a 10-year term, an income that does not disqualify you for the deduction. With $28,000 of debt and at rate and term, the white college graduate will pay a total of $310 per month. Of that, $135 would be interest for a total of $1,622.67 in interest the first year. Because that is less than the $2,500 cap, all of their interest will be deducted. So in the first year, the white graduate will be eligible to deduct all of their student loan interest, and each year thereafter, the interest paid will decrease as the principal decreases. With $53,000 of debt at the same rate in return, the college black graduate will pay $588 per month. Of that, $260 will be interest each month during the first year for a total of $3,071.48 in interest. Because the interest deduction is capped at $2,500, the black student still cannot deduct the excess. Like the white graduate, the black graduate will see a decrease in the interest each year and will eventually be able to deduct all of it once it falls under $2,500, but they'll have to wait a while before that happens. By my calculations and this hypothetical loan interest, that would be fully deductible in years 3 through 10. So, while white Americans are less likely than Blacks to finance their college expenses through student loans, but more likely to benefit from the student loan tax subsidy when they do. And Black Americans are far more likely to finance their college education with debt, but less likely to be eligible to deduct all of their interest payment on their debt, especially if they're lucky enough to get a job that pays reasonably well. It can get worse. If two, college black, if two black college graduates get married, they're statistically likely to enter the marriage with significant loan debt. As single taxpayers, they can each deduct up to $2,500 of student loan interest. But if they're married and file a joint return, the maximum amount they can deduct between the two of them remains $2,500. <clears throat> Hence, why so many people file married filing separately. And the deduction decreases as income increases. 
If you earn more than 85,000 as a single person in 2020, you were ineligible. Compare this with the mortgage interest deduction, which as we've seen, has no restrictions based on marital status or income. There are both historical and contemporary reasons that black student debt remains a drag on wealth building, but hidden in plain sight is the tax system that rewards those who can pay for college outright, and those people are mostly white. This results in black families carrying more student debt than their white peers, which as we saw when comparing the debt loads and interest payments of the average black graduate and the average white graduate, it does have a snowball effect on the black-white wealth gap. And that example was the best case scenario in which a black graduate's principal and interest are reduced over time. If a graduate is limited to income-based repayment plans or deferment, the interest accumulates and is added to the principal, making repayment even more out of reach. Dr. Jason Hugh, Associate Professor of Sociology at Dartmouth, researched student debt and race and found that student loan debt accounts for about 10% of the racial wealth gap when a college graduate is 25 years old. By age 30 or 35, it explains 25% of the wealth gap. The apparent solution, according to many politicians progressively, is to forgive all federal student loan debt. Blanket student loan forgiveness would disproportionately benefit black college students, both dropouts and graduates, and I support it with some conditions. I'd want to make sure the forgiveness itself was tax-free and not treated as taxable income, and to extend the same relief to debt taken out by parents who have financed their children's education, which is what ultimately happened for the Morehouse men and their families, because that too would disproportionately benefit Black parents. However, loan forgiveness is unlikely to actually level the playing field. For example, 30% of people with incomes over 114000 a group that is predominantly white, carry student loan debt. Loan forgiveness for them would still largely benefit white wealth building. And most student loan forgiveness plans do not include the direct plus loans, higher interest loans taken out by parents that are common among black families. Canceling all student loan debt while helping many black families will not reduce the black white wealth gap. The only way to do that would, to be, to, would be to cancel only black student loan debt. And it's unlikely any debt canceling proposal based on race will be upheld as constitutional. <clears throat> but as we are seeing right now, anything that's benefiting black people, they don't want to do. <laughs> so they certainly aren't going to do something that is a proposal based solely on just canceling black people's student loans. Targeted debt relief will do more to reduce the racial wealth gap than blanket debt relief, but here too obstacles remain. A white family with low income is likely to still have greater wealth than a black family with similar income. So targeting debt relief based on household income may exclude some high income blacks with significant student loan debt and include low income whites who still have greater wealth than the average black family. Remember, even if your family pays for your college education and gives you a down payment on a house, you can still technically be low income. For that reason, my preference would be to target relief based on wealth and not income. As for tax reform, 
To keep this problem from replicating, my first step would be to increase Pell Grants. Rising tuitions have made them far less effective than they were designed to be. In 2021, the maximum grant was $6,345, which covers less than 30% of the average tuition and fees at a public four-year college. When the program was first put into place, Pell Grants covered nearly 80% of these costs. Raising the maximum Pell Grant so that it covers more of tuition, room, and board, and of course materials, would both increase the percentage of Blacks who graduate and help more Black people to graduate debt-free. On an institutional level, Pell Grants should be restricted to those schools that have high graduation rates for Black students. Currently, the highest graduation rates among Pell Grant recipients are at private, not-for-profit colleges and universities. The lowest graduation rates are at those for-profit colleges. <clears throat> Excuse me. This would, of course, be expensive. How do we pay for it? Well, first, remember the huge tax breaks that not-for-profit colleges receive in the form of exemptions. The most selective colleges and universities are, by and large, sitting on a lot of tax-exempt money. For example, Harvard, I believe, just got a new president. She is a, um, I think, a Haitian immigrant who has been elected as the new president. And they mentioned inside of that article that the endowment for Harvard is 50, over $50 billion. Yeah, $50 billion just for that university. So yes, a lot of universities are, by and large, sitting on a lot of tax-exempt money. As admissions expert John <clears throat> Bockenstedt told the New York Times in 2019, some of the most selective colleges have so much money that they could easily admit freshman classes made up entirely of academically excellent Pell-eligible students and charge them nothing at all. But not only do those in other colleges not take that step, they generally do the opposite year after year. As a group, they admit fewer Pell-eligible students than almost any other institutions. Based on this premise that selective colleges can afford to fix this, but choose not to, I propose an income tax levied on the institutions at the very top of the pyramid with endowments greater than $750 million. <clears throat> Harvard. For decades, largely white administrators at selective universities have chosen to maintain the status quo, only sometimes tinkering around the edges. At the very least, we can make them pay for the right they've held explicitly or implicitly to maintain overwhelmingly white student bodies. Yes, the Supreme Court, with its burden of proof for racial discrimination, constrains what universities can do specifically for Black students. However, they are not without options for more aggressive recruiting policies when it comes to low-income students or Pell Grant recipients. <laughs> Sunlight must be cast on the revenue losses caused by the endowment exemptions and the other tax breaks colleges and universities receive such as exemptions from property tax. Yeah. Such exemptions enable selective colleges to hoard resources, taking them away from their surrounding communities. And for many of the most selective colleges at the top of the pyramid, these communities often include largely black or brown neighborhoods with underfunded K through 12 schools. Underfunded, of course, because their neighbors, the colleges, do not pay property taxes. 
However, even with these arguments, taxing extremely wealthy selective institutions will not be easy because as we've seen, the wealthy have significant influence over tax policy. My reforms would get pushed back and be difficult to enact. Once the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act went into effect and Stanford University with its almost $30 billion endowment was found to owe $43 million, it pushed back with the force of a thousand furies. Stanford said the tax was going to hurt students by forcing the university to reduce financial aid. Next, it vowed to work on repealing the tax or lessening its impact. Wealthy not-for-profits facing a tax increase like wealthy individuals will fight against it and leverage their considerable resources in the process. An easier change would be to increase the amount of interest that is deductible for student loan debt. If mortgage interest is allowed for up to $750,000 of debt, then we can certainly afford to have an unlimited deduction for student loan interest. When it comes to higher education and tax reform, however, the real solutions lie at the institutional level. Current tax subsidies for education generally do nothing to disrupt the current system, which makes it hard for Black people to gain access to the schools that provide the best return on investment. For-profit colleges prey on the vulnerable without transparency, and selective colleges and universities, which have made little progress in several decades on increasing Black enrollment in spite of their superior graduation rates, benefit from a federally subsidized system that must be radically changed. The late Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandy said, sunlight is said to be the best of disinfectants and such exposure at a minimum should be a tax exemption requirement for nonprofit colleges and universities. Colleges must publish annually on their web websites the debt loads and scholarship information by race, as well as by family income and wealth. Recent research discussed in the New York Times offered a look at how some colleges, notably the City University of New York, where 24% of the student body is Black, effectively bring lower income students into higher income classes, but was focused on economic and not racial diversity. When the research leaves out race in the conversation, we ignore the struggles and challenges faced by the Black middle class, which then contributes to the view that solving class issues will resolve most Black problems. We need detailed information about both race and income if we are serious about making college an engine of growth for all. Exposing this information should also result in some introspection by colleges about how they incorporate Black students into campus life. We've already seen how the well-being of Black students often simply isn't a priority. Just look at the Emory protests in 1969 and in 2015. But the introspection needs to go beyond hiring Black faculty and administrators to look at whether Black and white students have the same opportunities to benefit from the social and pre-professional connections that are built at college. I lived at home during college because I did not want to go into debt for room and board, and I have no regrets. In fact, I was spoiled by my mother's cooking and laundry service. Because I didn't make friends with my classmates outside of the classroom, I wasn't able to build the social connections that could have helped me with a future job or promotion. As we've seen, socializing with wealthy white students will probably come with its own form of racism triage, 
but that doesn't mean institutions should restrict black students' opportunities. At the end of the day, it should be the black student's choice and the institution should empower that. Similarly, not-for-profit colleges and universities need to do a better job of accommodating non-traditional students who have been steered toward for-profit colleges. Perhaps one upside of COVID-19 has been the increase of the use of online courses by selective institutions, which may allow for better outreach to those vulnerable to the for-profit industry going forward. Students like Chris and the hundreds of others who missed out on their degrees when our GOSI University closed deserve the opportunity to achieve better outcomes. College degrees generally translate into higher income, but those who do not graduate, the majority of Black college students, leave without degrees and are saddled with that debt. Among those who attend for-profit colleges, an even greater majority do not graduate. Since the Great Recession, 95% of jobs filled went to applicants with at least some college education. The wage premium has risen significantly for a college degree. So I understand the drive of Black Americans to pursue higher education. Degrees, however, do not fix racial income or wealth inequality. White Americans without a four-year college degree earn less than Blacks with a college degree, but they still have more than twice the family net worth. Black households headed by a college graduate have less wealth than white households headed by a high school dropout. College, like marriage and home ownership, is only one part of the Black wealth story. In the next chapter, we're going to take a look at a Black graduate's life that involves taking debt-laden college degrees into the labor market, which is going to lead us to the best jobs. Who has them and how is that impacting Black wealth? This concludes our reading for today. That is a lot to think about, but um, as she said, we got to think holistically about how to close the wealth gap. And as I'm going to continue to say, um, until this country actually provides actual reparations, it is going to be hard to just close that wealth gap in all of these other little ways. It'll close it a little bit, but the main thing that needs to happen is reparations. And our country knows that. Um, they prevented, I know they just recently prevented a shutdown of the government by getting a bill passed. And one of those bills that they passed was a bill on military spending. That bill on military spending was in the billions billions with part of that billions going to other countries for weapons and military aid. And yet they don't see how providing reparations for black people is also or should be considered as part of the national security plan of the nation is still not putting two and two together <laughs> but that is a conversation for another time
if you would like to come on today and talk about this wealth gap, please feel free to join me on camera. If you are listening by podcast today, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Again, the book is The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. Thank you again for tuning in, and I hope you have a great and wonderful weekend. Take care, and God bless.